This is an ABC podcast. Yan titiang masasangi. Hello, I'm Meredith Lake. Welcome to Soul Search on RN. Makasur ngalubring mana. And that's the haunting sound of a chanted lament for the missing dead by the Balinese performer Chok Sawitri. The chant is part of a video art installation that's just won the Blake Prize, one of Australia's longest running and most prestigious art awards, engaging questions of religion and spirituality. I'll take you to the Kazula Powerhouse Arts Centre in Western Sydney a bit later in the program to explore this year's Blake Prize and speak with the winning artist. But first, as Christians remember the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter, the renowned painter Makoto Fujimura reflects on suffering, humanity, time and creativity. As remarkable uh, and miraculous as Jesus' bodily resurrection is, it is even more remarkable that he remained human and he kept the wounds as emblem of the new creation. And that thought, uh, in a way, haunts me every time I paint, uh, because if that is true, that means everything we do on the side of eternity counts, even the difficult fractures, even what we may call our ground zero experiences. And the trauma and suffering is connected to the new creation, new reality. Makoto Fujimura is an internationally renowned contemporary artist working in the vanguard of a new art about hope, frailty and redemption. His paintings are exhibited all over the world, from the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tokyo to the Belvedere in Vienna. Makoto has even painted live on the stage of Carnegie Hall in New York. His work is subtle and beautiful, profound invitation to slow down. For Makoto, or Mako as he's known, painting is a contemplative process. And this Easter, he takes us into his studio for a conversation about art, time and devotion. Well, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey in United States, and I'm in a small farm land. I have converted the horse barn into my studio. So that's where you find me today. And behind me are very large paintings, seven feet by 11 feet. And one, the other one is seven feet by 12 feet called Walking on Water. So they are done with pulverized minerals, azurite and malachite, and you'll find materials all about me. If you were to come into the studio, you'll see these pigments and Japanese hide glue and all sorts of brushes that I use. Marco, this is a very different studio to someone who maybe works with a more Western style of oil paint. Can you say a little bit more about the pigments and the minerals that you work with? Because they're quite a distinctive aspect of Nihonga. Yeah, that's correct. And that's why I call it slow art. Part of the process of Japanese style painting or Nihonga, as they're now called, is to pulverize pigments and use uh, mix the pigments yourself by hand. And uh, so you're making your own paint. 
you use gold or silver or sumi ink, which is calligraphy ink from compressed pine soot into ink stick. So you see me preparing to paint longer, much longer than I would be actually painting. This harkens back really to 15th century Japan, where these technique coming from Asia, China, and Korea has been refined in Japan. And so I spent six and a half years mastering the craft of Nihonga in Japan. And I continue to use this technique, even though what I do will be considered under the contemporary art <laughs> label. Just to stay a moment longer with your process, you've described it, and I think this was in your, your most recent book, that making the paint, preparing the pigments and the glue was almost a devotional practice, mm-hmm. a liturgy of sorts, mm-hmm. which is astonishing language really to use for something that on another level is a matter of chemistry. In what sense is this a devotional practice for you? Right. The way I paint is very much the way Japanese artisans and artists used to paint, which is, again, slowing down to make the ink yourself. To create a dark calligraphy ink, it takes about an hour of rubbing a stick against a stone, a slate, that whole process is very important for what comes out with brushes and paper and silk. That's what slows you down. And many people wonder, like, why would you do that today when you can use other materials that are much faster? And I have come to appreciate and understand that these materials have life of their own and they speak to you and they capture a sense of time that we have lost and we have forgotten. Even if you're painting an image, uh, a bird or something like that, how these materials are made really translates into how our eyes will read the image. So to me, that's really part of my work is to try to capture a different sense of time than what we're used to every day. What in the Bible is time and eternity are something that is connected. So this is what I try to reach with my work. Marco, you mentioned that this form, this approach to painting was refined in the 15th century which, from the little I know, seems to be a critical period for what we might now associate with a Japanese aesthetic. This is the period, I think, when the tea ceremony becomes a high art. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that aesthetic? Because it transcends painting, doesn't it? It's much richer and even a deeper current than the visual Yes, even the sense of the word liturgy, um, I think, is connected. Starting in around 13th century, Japan tea tradition and related to that, flower arranging and painting as well, it came into its own, as it were, in Japan, having traversed through Silk Road, through China and Korea into Japan. And it was in 16th century that Senorikyu, who is the originator and probably one most credited with 
Japanese aesthetic today lived and worked in Daitokuji Temple, which is the Mecca of Zen Buddhism in Japan. And there's an interesting overlap between that time and the consolidation of Japan, where it was literally feudal war period when art of tea became refined. Paradoxically, this art form that spoke of peace developed because of the conflicted times and Likyu especially created time and space that was quite distinct from the frantic uh, survival mode that people are used to. And so if you were to visit Daitokuji Temple today, you will you will find his tea house, which is rather small, tiny, where the tea master and the invited guests will have one-to-one time. And you will have to take his sword off to enter the tea house. And this was a very intentional device by Rikyu to create a space for peace, space for shalom. And there's another over, interesting overlap with Christianity, which came into Japan around the same time. And it came earlier, but this was a time when there was quite a bit of flourishing of Christianity in Kyoto. And Rikyu was directly influenced by masses taking place. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper right at that point, partly because late last year I spoke to an Australian contemporary artist, the sculptor and painter Lindy Lee, who's been very influenced in her practice, particularly in flung ink painting, by a posture towards time that was rooted in the philosophy of the 13th century Zen monk Dogen, who, you know, founded the Soto Zen tradition that's been so influential in Japan and in the Japanese versions of Buddhism that have since, you know, spread to places like Australia. But you're using words like shalom, which is a a Hebrew word. You've already mentioned the Bible and the conversation, so to speak, between Buddhism and Christianity that was occurring. Could you say more about your own engagement with that period in Japan your, your faith story, but also your artistic practice seems so connected to that 16th century kind of moment. Yes. And I went back to Japan. I was born in Boston and spent my childhood years in Japan, but then came back to US for middle school through college. And I went back as a graduate student, basically. But what drew me back was my encounter with paintings, 16th and 17th century paintings, Japanese paintings at the Boston Museum, which I saw in high school and in college. And being extremely drawn to them, I didn't know what was (laughs) drawing me. I wanted to study firsthand Japanese art, and that allowed me to spend six and a half years as a national scholar that's when I encountered Likyu's aesthetic. And I think the aesthetic intuitively resided deep within my, my heart and came out when I was painting. So I needed to understand it better and, and deeper. I write about this time in my book, Silence and Beauty, which is a response to Shusak Endo's novel, Silence, and Martin Scorsese's film, silence. And because the novel takes place in early uh, 17th century, everything seems to indicate the connection between Likyu's tea aesthetics and also the dictatorial pressures that 
Nikki was under and painters were under and 250 years of persecution and suppression that took place, isolation that took place after. And these are very significant markers to development of Japanese aesthetic and Japanese psyche. One example of that might be Kintsugi, if I've pronounced that correctly, the art of mending the broken, pouring gold into the cracks, repairing a trauma to a vessel in a way that makes it different but somehow more beautiful than it was in its theoretically Mm -hmm. perfect original form. That's a good way of putting it. And many important tea vessels will break because of many earthquakes in Japan. And the families of tea masters would know the provenance of how that important vessel served this water lord or this important figure in history. And instead of fixing it in the way that Westerners will think of fixing something that's broken or simply throwing it away, Japanese have this tradition coming from Rikyu's aesthetic, I think, uh, directly that what is imperfect is more important. And what happened to something that got fractured, that history of that uh, needs to be honored. And even the fragments needs to be kept as sacred. So several generations will pass before these fragments will be given to a Japan lacquer master, a urushi master to be mended, but they do not hide the fractures. In fact, they highlight the fractures, amplifying the fractures by use of gold on top of the lacquer, thereby making the resulting kintsugi bowl more valuable than the original. And this is a remarkable metaphor for our time. We uh, have gone through many fractures and through pandemic suffered much. And all we want to do is cast that aside and move forward. And yet uh, these traumas will remain in many ways. And having experienced 9-11 firsthand, I was three blocks from the towers. So we spent the next 10 years trying to recover from that trauma. And now 20 years later, we're still dealing with the trauma of that day. But I, I understand the Kintsugi path of retaining the fractures and even not trying to fix it right away, or even if you are going to do something with it, that it will be mended with the fractures highlighted so that the resulting teaware is more beautiful in that sense than it was before. Makoto Fujimura, a renowned contemporary painter who finds beauty where past traumas are lamented and transformed. On RN, I'm Meredith Lake, and Makoto is with me for Soul Search this Easter, and he's mentioned some of the influences on his own posture towards pain and beauty, from the traditions of the tea house to Japanese art forms like kintsugi. There's a resonance too, I think, with the Christian narrative of death and resurrection. I've been reading Marco's book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, so I know he has something more to say about that. First, though, I want to hear a bit more about a particular collection of Makoto's paintings, Walking on Water. It was 10 years in March since the great earthquake and tsunami in Tohoku, Japan. 
which you might remember killed approximately 20,000 people. Marco began his walking on water paintings as an elegy to the victims. Certainly after I visited the tsunami affected areas of Tohoku, Japan, it was just devastating to see fishing boat turned upside down on top of elementary schools in which these children were washed away because the teachers didn't bring them up the hill fast enough. And when you think about the traumas of our time and how suffering can linger, and here we are 10 years after and the nuclear meltdown is still ongoing. So in many ways, Japanese recovery is hasn't even began. But we move on and forget. I'm not doing these paintings just to remember, but I am doing them as a gesture, certainly of creating energy for the victims and remembering them. But they're also prayer for new creation. So can we walk on water uh, in such a time as this? I paint these very large paintings, somewhat impractical and almost space to hang. And I'm hoping to show them in Los Angeles gallery <laughs> because it's, there are only a few galleries that can handle these large paintings. So it's not really for an exhibit. It's really a way that I wanted to sort through my own feelings and my experience. And because I am using water to paint, I use water-based materials, I am literally walking water when I'm painting. That brings a certain attentiveness to nature of how waters work and trying to capture power, but also grace of movement of water themselves. On one level, Marco, water is such a vast and expansive thing if we think of the ocean and the devastation mm -hmm. that it can wreak. Yeah. At the same time, water has such an intimate scale if you think about a tear. And I wanted to ask you about the role of the tear, particularly the tears of Jesus in your own vision of what creation can mean. It's a key motive in your work and in your writing. Yeah. And it derives, I think, from just that very tiny verse in the Gospels, mm -hmm. which mentioned the weeping of Jesus and Jesus' own tears. For people who might not know that story, would you yes. mind telling it? John 11, uh, verse 35, is the shortest passage in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. This is in the context of Jesus going back to Bethany, where his friends Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived. Um, Jesus receives note, actually, from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is sick and he needs to come as he is the divine healer and miracle worker. They were fully expecting to come and heal their brother, and he doesn't. He tells the disciples, I'm intentionally delaying my coming to show forth the glory of God. By the time he arrives in Bethany, uh, Lazarus has already died. And Martha and Mary are quite perplexed by this. Why would their friend and their Lord 
not come. And Martha, the analytical activist, meets him halfway and asks him this question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And basically asking, why didn't you come? And Jesus gives a very analytical, rational answer that is recorded in the gospel. Uh, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And Martha says, yes, I do believe that. And she goes to fetch Mary, who is behind because she is angry and weeping with the others. So Mary comes to meet Jesus and says the same thing, exact word for word. Lord, if only you have been here, my brother would not have died. But perhaps in a more angrier tone, Jesus does not say a word. And the Bible records Jesus wept. And you have to ask why, uh, because moments later he would go to the grave of Lazarus and and pronounce Lazarus to come out of the grave, and Lazarus is resurrected. So why didn't Jesus just do that? Uh, why did he bother to waste time weeping when he had the solution in his power? And I spent many Lenten seasons between Ash Wednesday and Easter thinking about two, these two words, this paradoxical reality of Jesus's presence and his insistence that we stop and feel the full impact of our suffering before we act to do anything about them. This is, I believe, one of the greatest indication that God is not God of industry, but God is God of presence. What God institutes in the universe out of his love is something that doesn't make sense to us in our Darwinian struggles to survive. And even if you had the solution to death itself, the reality is that Jesus will have to walk toward the cross soon after. And those tears, I think Mary, being a very intuitive artist that she is, understood through those tears the extent to which Jesus will carry out that mission to his own death, to sacrifice his own life for us so that we will be liberated um, from our fear of death and meaninglessness. So Jesus's tears to me is the pinholes through which we can enter into the new creation. It captures God's own heart. The story of Jesus grieving for his friend Lazarus and then raising Lazarus from the dead is unique to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. It's a story that Makoto Fujimura meditates on every year throughout Lent. And in the biblical narrative, it's followed by another scene involving Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus has come to visit them again, and they put on a dinner in his honour. Martha is serving the food, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus, all pretty ordinary as things went then. But then Mary comes in and does something shocking. She takes a pint of very expensive perfume, breaks it open and pours it out all over Jesus' feet. Then right there, in the middle of the meal, Mary bends down and wipes Jesus' feet with her own hair. 
The other people at this dinner party are astonished, even scandalised. But for Makoto Fujimura, Mary's response to Jesus opens up a new vision of suffering and of creativity. Mary's response to Jesus' tears is to intuit his suffering to come, something that even the disciples had a hard time grasping. They thought that they were entering into Jerusalem for a final battle, that all things would be set right. And Jesus kept on speaking about his own death, which didn't make sense to them. But to Mary, his tears, through his tears, something communicated to her that he must anoint Jesus as a king. And that this was the most important gesture that she could ever give to her Lord. And to her, this was the response to bring the wedding nod that she owned, the most expensive possession that she had, to Jesus and anoint him uh, in front of the disciples, indignant because they didn't understand her extravagant gesture. But Jesus understood and he said, you know, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And wherever the gospel is told, what she has done will also be told. Yeah, and it's in all four of the gospels, which indicates that all the disciples and witnesses remember this as one outrageous incident that defined who Jesus is and how to remember him. Now, we, we must remember that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and went into Jerusalem, he could not do what he normally would do. The first thing you do is to cleanse yourself at the pool, at the entry of Jerusalem. He could not do that. So he carried this aroma of Mary, a wedding nard, through his suffering and to the cross. So the centurion who pierced his side would have detected this aroma because it's a very strong aroma and a wedding nod is supposed to last for weeks. That is the only earthly possession that Jesus carried to the cross, the nod of Mary. And it's a wedding nod. So the centurion must have been totally confused. What is this aroma, this smell? So when Paul later talks about, to some, Christ is the stench of death. To others, Christ is the aroma of life. That I think is referring to this reality. A friend of mine who's a, a museum curator, when I was sharing this story, said, you know, Marco, that's where all art belongs, is in the aroma of Mary. That's where Bach and Da Vinci's and all art is floating about in the aroma of Mary. And we must remember that every time we speak about the gospel. Well, for Christians, the promise of Easter and particularly of Easter Day, the story of Jesus's resurrection, could possibly be summed up with that line from the end of the New Testament, See, I am making all things new. Yes. And I wonder what Easter means to you this year. Wow. Um, Easter 2021 is to 
understand that what we celebrate in triumph of Jesus' resurrection is a beginning of a journey actually into the tears of Christ. Um, Easter 2021 is very different because of the common trauma that we experience. There's not a single person on this earth who have not been affected by this virus in some way. And that's horrific news on one hand, but Easter tells us that's also good news because in order for us today to practice resurrection, we have to understand that the common curse of suffering is the entry point into the new. And we can do this together by understanding each other, whether you share the same culture uh, or different languages or different cultures, we have something in common now. So post-Easter journey will be, rather than the traditional psalms of ascent into Jerusalem, it will be psalms of descent into the world, the dark darkness and the suffering uh, world that we are empowered because of Christ's bodily resurrection and the physical remains of Christ's tears with us, we can confidently walk into and say that the new has arrived, despite what it may look like and despite the lingering suffering trauma, we can all look toward the new. Makoto Fujimura, an internationally acclaimed painter whose art draws on Japanese techniques and aesthetics and on a Christian theology of renewal and creativity. Makoto is the author of several books, including Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, published just this year by Yale University Press. And if you'd like to see some of Mako's works, just head to the Soul Search website for links to his Walking on Water paintings as well as an extraordinary series he produced to illustrate the four Holy Gospels. It makes great Easter viewing. On RN and by podcast, you're listening to Soul Search this Easter. I'm Meredith Lake, and thinking about art and faith, I wonder how contemporary Australian artists are exploring questions of spirituality. Come with me to Western Sydney to find out. Well, here we are at the Kazula Powerhouse Arts Centre. I'm on the traditional land of the Cabrigal clan of the Darug Nation, now within the boundaries of Liverpool City Council in Western Sydney. These days, this area is home to people from pretty much every corner of the earth, between them speaking more than 140 languages and belonging to numerous different faiths. On one side, I've got the Georges River, and in front of me, there's a huge brick industrial building. It was built in the 1950s, literally as a powerhouse to generate electricity during winter and other shortages. These days though, it's the center for an internationally regarded arts space. And it's the home to one of Australia's most prestigious art prizes, the Blake Prize for Religious Art. That's what we're here to see. Let's go inside.
Hello, my name is Luke Latano. I am currently the acting head of curatorial here at Kasul Powerhouse Art Centre. This is a converted power station. It was never intended to be an art gallery, but um, we're, as we've been here since 1994, and it, it's an, an amazing space to work with and to think about. So we're in the sort of the main turbine hall space, and we're surrounded by works on three of our walls. The Blake Prize actually fills uh, multiple galleries. Some of our galleries have a lot of our industrial architecture exposed and some of them are more traditional white cube spaces and that's always something that you're you're juggling here at Kusula. You can be in what is a traditional gallery space but you're also in an industrial space. You're in a relic or the residue of post-World War Australia and the sprawl of suburbia. Like it, it, It's all represented in this building at the same time. And the works kind of uh, bear that contemporary nature as well. But some of the sounds that we're hearing as well are some of the, the video works. Obviously the Blake Prize is a representation of, of contemporary art and contemporary art does not have a specific medium. It is video, it's sculpture, it's found objects, it's painting, it's drawings, it's audio works, it's, it's abstract and it's literal. But some of the sounds that we're hearing are also street sounds, sounds of uh, cars driving by, street-side murals, but we're also people hearing families and people enjoy the spaces, and so it's this kind of cacophony of sounds and experiences and contemporary art, and it's just something you have to kind of sink yourself into and go along for the ride. Thanks for having me here today to see the Blake Prize. Well, the Blake Prize is one of Australia's longest-running and most prestigious art awards. Tell me about this year's prize. So the Blake Prize this year includes 86 artists from every state and territory around Australia, which is really fabulous for us. This year we received 1,200 entries, which is kind of record-breaking for us. We had to extend through COVID, and, and I think the last year was so kind of unknown what people were making and so it's really really interesting for us to sort of see this exhibition as kind of the product of the last few years it kind of re represents the diversity of art practice in Australia and the diversity of approaches to the ideas and the themes and the concepts of spirituality and religion in Australia today which is amazing. 1200 entries is extraordinary I think that might be a surprise if you consider Australia and or Australian arts is particularly secular, which I guess is part of the question that the prize is meant to provoke. This is a prize specifically for religious art though. How do you think the founders of the prize understood that back in 1951 when the Blake Prize was first awarded? Well, I think that's a, a really interesting question. Thinking about Australia in 1951 and thinking about Australia in 2020, one. It's just kind of a world apart in my kind of thinking. So I think the founders of the Blake Prize in 1951 were really focused on elevating conversations about religious art. 1951 is sort of, I guess, post the war. It's the Cold War. It's a time of fear and the unknown of what the Cold War was bringing in and a focusing on religious art outside of the church. I think bringing that into broader conversations within the public in Australia about sort of religion and I guess at that time Christianity was the primary religion being discussed and so I think if the founders were looking at 
the prize today, I think they'd be blown away by how it kind of represents Australia's growth and change and evolution, especially with who counts themselves as an Australian today, because the approaches to religion and spirituality is much more expanded than maybe it was in those initial years. It's interesting to think not just about how religion has changed, but perhaps how the nation and who constitutes an Australian has changed, as you mentioned, Luke. Looking around even just the room we're in, I mean, it's an astonishing array of works right here. There's an Indigenous creation story behind me here. There's a painting of Donald Trump wielding his Bible at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests on the other wall. There are video installations, a collection of burnt out, damaged bottles and cans. <laughs> I mean, what constitutes religious art now? Could you sum it up? <laughs> that would be a very difficult thing to sum up. I think the, the range of entries, the diversity of religious practices and, and spiritual practices being explored through contemporary art is really a representation of the, what contemporary art is and, it's, and contemporary art's importance to us. It's about posing a question, interrogating ideas, having the opportunity to have a conversation about complicated things, but also thinking of, of the visual art form as the language to explore these, these ideas and these themes. Because the, the spoken word, the written word, nothing can kind of capture the feelings, the tensions, the needs to question that I think art is about. And the Blake Prize is a really amazing extension of that in, in all parts of our life. I mean, the artists are, are considering specific religious stories, but they're also th thinking about their own spirituality. I mean, the, the work that we're sending in front of these cans is, is a sort of a repeated task. The artist is kind of thinking about their previous drinking habits. I mean, they're all kind of beer cans, and the artist would kind of throw them out the window as they were driving home to hide that. And then the bushfires kind of ravaged the Blue Mountains. And so the artists kind of went back and recollected these cans from the Blue Mountains areas, which were ravaged by fires, but also the cans that she was throwing out the window. And it's that process of coming to terms with the habits and kind of thinking about your frame of mind, your health, and why we do things, why we perform these tasks. And it's kind of a spiritual process of um, coming to terms with, but also accepting and moving forward from. It's about sort of spiritual processes, but this is really something as well that's um, informed by kind of religious processes of um, repeated actions and also thinking about a higher power and trying to find answers. And the artist is trying to find an answer. Well, Luke, we'll speak to the winner of this year's Blake Prize, Layla Stevens, a little bit later. But I wonder if you could show me some of the works that have really stood out to you among this year's finalists. Can we go and see some? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can, we can start over here. Okay, so there's an enormous textile work hanging from the ceiling in front of me. Why did you choose this one? Tell me about it. So the, the work that we're standing in front of is um, a work by Liam Benson. It's, it's titled Community Participatory Embroidery thoughts and prayers. What we see is um, this you know, few metres high, few metres tall, few metres wide 
black tulle, which has been embroidered with these flower patterns. And so this project is an ongoing project that Liam has performed. He works with community groups, he sort of sets up the fabric and invites people to come in and just kind of talk about their experiences. Experiences of violence, of race, and all that that entails. And this is a really interesting process where you get a group of people together, you get their hands busy. So the embroidery is actually completed by the participants. And Liam, as the artist, kind of prompts questions and leads conversations. And it's this really amazing thing when your hands are busy, you're able to kind of talk freely, you're able to hear other people's perspectives, and you're able to complete something together. So it's about finding kind of a new harmony between people, but also opening up those conversations and allowing people who may not um, have opportunities to cross over, be it, you know, because of how society kind of sections off people or makes it harder for people to kind of see each other. But Liam's project allows people to kind of come together and, and do something fun together, but also complete uh, a beautiful work. And, and I think this has an amazing presence physically, but also thinking about those many, many participants. is It's kind of a, a labour of many people's love. Listening to you talk about it, Luke, it reminds me of, I guess, so many of the communal ritual practices of religious communities, and in fact, many kinds of communities, that there's something about the process that's critical to the work, even more critical, perhaps, than the final result. Mm. What else can we see? Uh, maybe we can go into another room. Sure. We're going to stay here. Wow. We are standing in front of a painting by Black Douglas called Three Strikes and You're Out. Luke, would you, would you describe it for me? Yeah, so Black Douglas is, has this amazing practice where he sort of has these really textured paintings but representational as well. And so we see a, um, a crucifix and an Aboriginal figure with their arms impaled by spears and a white picket fence is sectioning off the the space with um, police tape surrounding it. It's kind of got really bright, vibrant colours, but obviously is a, quite a dark painting. The police tape isn't that prominent when you first look at it, but standing in front of this work, I can't help but think of, you know, black deaths in police custody. Perhaps there's a comment here about the damage wrought by Christianity to Indigenous cultures and spiritualities. That might be part of the narrative here. Have you had much response to this painting from people who've visited the exhibition so far? Black Douglas is someone that we here at Kasul Powerhouse have worked with a lot, and um, I think our, our local audiences are familiar with his work and know his work and really uh, appreciate the way that he sort of challenges ideas. This work especially is about feeling like they're being forced to embrace the religion of the colonizer, and, and this is sort of a theme that Black Douglas works with a lot, this idea of uh, the colonizers enforcing perspectives and experiences on the indigenous population here in Australia. The kind of ongoing themes of his practice are focused on how rules are enforced on the Aboriginal population and also his experience of juggling that himself.
Icalwanen purun menep Kimudengan tema tukel-tukel angin api the winner of this year's Blake Prize is the Australian Balinese photographer and videographer Layla Stevens for her haunting video art installation Kidung or Lament. Hello Layla and congratulations. Your winning work was selected from among more than 1,200 entries. Tell me about it. What's the subject? What is being lamented? So. Kidung is a three-channel moving image artwork. It's in response to Bali's histories of political violence uh, that happened during Indonesia's uh, genocide of 1965 to 66. So this was a time that sort of signalled the shift to power when uh, Suharto's new order regime came into power. The scale of the killings and the violence was quite immense. You have a conservative estimate of 500,000 were killed, but most new estimates place the number closer to 1 million. And then within that, you also have many others who were subject to imprisonment without trial or became political exiles. So this is a history that continues to have a kind of lasting trauma, mostly because there hasn't been a sort of state-led recognition of what happened nor has there been any kind of justice done on behalf of victims and survivors. So it continues to be a history that's surrounded by this kind of politicised amnesia in Indonesia. And my um, response to this was to look at sites in Bali that there are known mass graves. And so the work Kidung is in response to one of those sites. This particular site lies a large banyan tree. So I, I focus the work on the banyan tree itself. It's uh, across two channels of the work. And I present these kind of close-ups of the tree and what I come to think of as uh, portraits of the tree. I've come to think of this tree as a kind of witness to those events. And over time, because I've worked with this site for quite a number of years, I've, kind, I've come to think of it as a kind of guardian to the presence of the missing dead that lie at the site. Layla, I want to ask you more about the banyan tree and its significance, well, as a witness, as a, a portal to a kind of sacred memory of, of trauma. Mm. But the central panel features a woman singing in that haunting tone. The piece is centred around the performance by Choksawi Tree. She is a performance artist, uh, a poet, an activist amongst many things. She was really my collaborator for this piece. We worked on you know, a script together and she turned that script into a, a chanted lament that you hear. It's, uh, it's a sort of, the script itself was talking through 1965 histories in Bali and how to remember it now. But the, the lament itself, it's sung in a style of chanting that's used in certain types of ceremony in Bali. So it, it, it follows that kind of rhythm. I wanted to frame her performance through this possibility of an artwork of providing perhaps a kind of healing to these histories and uh, within the context of showing this work in a gallery I wanted to present perhaps a kind of alternative monument to the site itself. What does it mean to you 
as someone in a younger generation to remember in this way those violences, those traumas? So when I started to kind of research these histories in Bali and talk to people and talk to survivors of these histories, it was really a way of educating myself uh, about a gap that I didn't know about. And it was also in response, a lot of my work is very place-based, so it was in response to looking at certain sites in Bali and sort of thinking about this kind of counterpoint of having really touristed topology lying on top of these sites. So you have this sort of situation now where you have things like hotels and villas being built on top of sites where um, the missing dead lie from 65. And my way of engaging with these landscapes was to kind of read them for what we can't see. Because within these sites, there's really no visibility around the dead. You know, you can walk around these sites and you can pass through them and they're very ordinary. There's nothing there that sort of belies what lies there. Uh, And the missing dead uh, very much remain inaccessible. Could you say more about the banyan tree, that particular tree, that location, but also its larger sacred significance? Yes, it is a sacred tree in Bali. I kind of think of them as, um, as place markers in the landscape. Often they are kind of ways of navigational devices like that go to that banyan tree when you see that banyan tree turn south or turn north to get to where you know that's often the kind of way people were given you know directions and they're also kind of thought of in Bali as spirit attractors there's a lot of sort of spirit or unseen activity that happens around them and so they're given a lot of respect you know you'll often see them being looked after with daily offerings so already that tree in that, that particular tree would have had, you know, received that kind of attention. And I just thought of it as being quite interesting because, you know, you have something that is being given attention to alongside that's something that isn't being paid attention to. It also speaks to the idea of the unseen in Bali being so important and navigating place through these kind of immaterial or invisible sort of aspects to a place is very important and regardless of what you believe or not maintaining that balance is very significant. Layla this work has just been awarded the Blake Prize which obviously as you know is a prize for art that engages questions of religion and spirituality. What do you hope to contribute to our broader conversations around questions of meaning, questions of the spirit? I think, I mean, the Blake for me has always been a really interesting prize because it's, it's been awarded a number of times to some really significant video artists that I've really loved. And so that was quite exciting for me, you know, to be even to have a work that I feel could extend that lineage. But in terms of talking about a work that speaks to death, but death on a collective scale, and then also this idea of unresolved death within both private and public memory I think is a really important thing to talk about but also to frame it within the conversation that the Blake Prize has I think is really interesting. Well thank you and congratulations it's an astonishing piece of work and it's a privilege to see it. If you'd like to see Layla Stevens' video installation, Kidung or Lament and all the other finalists in this year's Blake Prize 
They're being exhibited here at the Kazula Powerhouse Arts Centre in Western Sydney until April the 11th. Ngeroki sin gumine kanti belada di watas nusa bilang nusa. And that's it from the Kazula Powerhouse Arts Centre and for Soul Search today. If you'd like more information about this year's Blake Prize, just head to the Soul Search website where you can also see some pictures of the artworks I've been talking about with the Blake Prize winner, Layla Stevens, and before that with the curator, Luke Latorno. And if you missed my earlier conversation with the internationally renowned contemporary painter, Makoto Fujimura, you can catch up online or with the Soul Search podcast anytime with the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your pods. Next time on the show, we'll meet one of Turkey's foremost Sufis and we'll hand the mic to an award-winning Australian poet. I was privileged enough to have a community, to have a support of strong women who, in terms of living and breathing this sort of activism, were also passing on their own knowledges and traditions. And so for me, this is exactly what I mean when I say my poems, my work, my politics, what I create doesn't happen in isolation or in vacuum, but is actually a series of communal or collective generosities. And almost every opportunity that I have had related to art and otherwise has been immensely privileged to say this, but has been because of women and particularly women of color elevating and making space and providing opportunities so that we are on this journey, I suppose. And that to me is where my poetry and my art is grounded. Sarah Saleh, who'll join me next time on Soul Search to share her experience of collective generosity. She'll also perform the work that won this year's Peter Porter Poetry Prize. I don't want to say too much now, but it's set partly in Lakemba in Western Sydney during the Ramadan night markets. It's lush and unsettling. You won't want to miss it. For now, though, thanks to producers Hong Jang and Muda Tadias. I'm Meredith Lake wishing a very happy Easter to all who celebrate and looking forward to catching you next time for Soul Search on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.